open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to resume our John, Gospel of John series. John chapter 19, and we'll start reading in verse 16. Just a reminder for next week, make sure you run your clock forward an hour. You'll get one extra hour of sleep. That way you'll also, yes, there's much rejoicing. So make sure you're here, set your, sorry, you lose an hour, never mind. It's, it's bad news. You lose an hour. <laughs> Juked you. All right. John 19, verse 16. There's good news in the sermon. Sorry for the prelude. John 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. The last time we looked at John 19, it was several weeks ago, and we approached it from the historical angle. We looked at this entire section, verse by verse, as the events unfolded there outside Jerusalem, considering how the cross, the story of the cross, fits into the larger sweep of redemptive history, how the cross is the hinge of redemptive history. Everything turns on it. Everything that's before the cross anticipates the cross. Everything that's after the cross reflects back upon the cross. So we tried to relate it to the overarching meta-narrative, that big story of the Bible that had four chapters. Remember creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And then we sought to see how how the cross is incomparably relevant for the life of every person on planet Earth and for the created order itself. Everything, literally everything, is touched by what took place on the cross of Christ. And so our focus then was historical. Our focus this morning, and really for the next three weeks or so, will be theological. So the, the questions along the lines of what we'll be studying over these next few weeks are or something like this. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? What does the cross tell us about God? What did Christ accomplish on the cross and what does that have to do with me? As I was reading this passage this week, uh, it brought to mind a story that I'd heard from a famous and uh, wonderfully helpful author and apologist named Ravi Zacharias. How many of you heard of Ravi Zacharias? Uh, he wrote the following, just a story from his own life of an experience. He writes, During the three decades that I have crisscrossed this globe and seen much of the world, I have frequently been asked what my favorite city is or what food I enjoy the most. The latter is easier to answer than the former because while cities have attractions for different reasons, the palate is conditioned by one's land of birth. And all my gumbo-loving brothers and sisters said, Amen. <laughs> He goes on, he says, strangely, I've never been asked for my favorite sight. Now that is a tough one. I'm not sure I could pick a single spectacle, but I know one experience that would be in the running as the most emotionally moving moment for me. One brilliantly sunny day, I was driven from Cape Town to very near Land's End in South Africa, Cape Point. 
As my colleague and I stood there, staring into the wild blue yonder, the sight was utterly breathtaking. Yes, I have seen the Taj Mahal and many of the other so-called wonders of the world, but this was sheer enchantment. Whether this was so because we were not expecting such a banquet for the eyes or whether it was just some preconditioning from a busy day, I would not even venture to analyze. All I know is that the scene affected both of us in the same way. We stood at the edge of the land and watched as the waters of the calm Atlantic and the restless Indian Oceans collided into one massive torrent of fluid strength. The power of the current almost visible to the naked eye. The endless horizon, the borderless blue of turquoise of the mighty waters and the frothy white tips of the crashing waves as they collided against each other. This scene from the world's end seemed to overwhelm us with a stupendous sense of awe. For seemingly unexplainable reasons, my eyes filled with tears. I was in the throes of enjoying the wonder and the vastness of creation. But then... A strange, unexpected sensation took hold of us, and we both did something that neither of us had ever done before. We walked back a few steps, found a sharp stone, and scratched the names of our wives onto the surface of a massive piece of rock, realizing that in a matter of days, the writing would be erased. But the thought in Acts spoke volumes. We had been in the throes of wonder, and the moment seemed incomplete without being able to enjoy it with the ones dearest to us. Well, the words of John 19 weren't scratched on a rock anywhere in Palestine. But I believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the gospel accounts that we have were given to us out of that same impulse. That these disciples saw something so spectacular, particularly in the cross of Christ, that it struck them with awe and wonder for all the days of their lives and they had to write it down and tell people about it because there they saw in the cross the colliding of the ocean of divine mercy and the power of the justice of God both meeting in one and the same moment and it arrested their attention and together with all the other biblical writers in the New Testament they would, they would center all of their writings on the event of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ they would do it under divine inspiration to be sure but not at gunpoint this was their passion they loved this truth they stood in awe of this crucified and risen Christ and so Paul says In Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I want to ask you this question as we get started. Where does your mind go when you think of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins? Does that leave its mark on you? Where do your thoughts and your attitudes and your feelings and your emotions go when you contemplate the Savior of the world? dying for your sins. I think if we had eyes to see from God's perspective, right? Where do we find God's perspective? In the scriptures, we find God's perspective on what was happening on the cross. Ancient prophecies, if we stood under the avalanche of ancient prophecies and of New Testament apostolic commentary on what was happening in the cross event, 
so many things in our lives would begin to change. Our perspectives would begin to take shape. God wouldn't be the ho-hum deity he so often is to us. We wouldn't say that in our creedal statements, but functionally, sometimes it feels that way, and our lives push God to the periphery. It wouldn't be that way if we stood under the avalanche of biblical teaching on the cross, and then we looked again at this too familiar event. My pride would constantly be checked because of the evaluation that the cross makes of my sinfulness in and of myself. I would have more patience with others because looking at the cross, I would see the mercy that I've been shown in spite of what I deserve. The fact that I'm God's child wouldn't be a, of course I'm God's child. It would be 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we, of all people, should be called children of God. I suspect that one of the things that makes us so nominal in this culture, so half-hearted in the way that we live our Christian lives, has everything to do with what we see here. It has, it's much deeper than the fact that we just can't get our prayer life together. We've lost a sense of childlike wonder and amazement that we need to see God's glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we can't come away from seeing the glory of God unchanged. We see and we behold his glory and we're transformed, it says, into that same image from glory to glory. We have to see glory to be changed. And, and, and so we, we come to John 19 and we see the pinnacle of the display of God's glory. John Piper calls this moment the blazing center of the glory of God. If we want to be amazed by grace, if we want to be awed by God in such a way that it transforms everything about our lives, well, this is a perfect place to come and see God because his character is on display in most amazing ways. So let's, before we study this, let's pray and ask God to give us a fresh sight of his beauty. Lord, we come to you as needy people, Lord, desiring for faith to be stirred in our hearts, Lord, for joy to well up inside of us, for us to feel again the joy of our salvation, to be gripped by your character, your glory displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, grip our hearts to such a degree that we are changed, we are transformed by beholding your glory. Lord, we need you for this. We can't will ourselves into growth. We need, we need eyes of faith that see you as you truly are and then hearts that instinctively respond to that sighting of glory with joy-filled obedience. Do that work here, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Well, Jesus' life, as we know, was bookmarked by very strange natural phenomenon. Right? It begins, we know, because we sing the songs at Christmas time. Right? The angels were singing glad tidings of great joy, right? There's, there's dazzling brightness in the middle of the night in Bethlehem, and Jesus' ending of his life was totally the opposite. Instead of dazzling brightness in the middle of the night, there is 
darkness in the middle of the day outside of Jerusalem as Jesus the Savior is hanging on a cross. And in a sense, what we're asking over the next three weeks is what was happening in that darkness? What was taking place outside the city near the trash heap of Jerusalem? And one of the answers to that question is this. Jesus Christ was suffering under the just wrath of God for the sins of the world. He was suffering in my place in order to purchase my forgiveness and my salvation. Let's say that again. Jesus Christ was suffering under the just wrath of God in the darkness for the sins of the world. He was suffering in my place in order to purchase my forgiveness and my salvation. This doesn't strike us as surprising if we remember earlier in John's gospel. Some of the very first moments, actually the very first moment Jesus walks on the scene in John's gospel and John the Baptist has the unique privilege in all of history to identify this man. All of the prophets would have given their right arm for this moment because they all foretold of the Messiah who was yet to come and they in some sense described inklings of truth about what that Messiah would be like, characteristics of that Messiah. And so here, John the Baptist is, and he's not just gonna say like Isaiah, one day down the road the Messiah will come and here's what he will be like. John the Baptist stands there by the River Jordan and he points his finger and says, he's right there. Now what description, what characteristic of the Messiah is he going to choose? There are so many, right? Is he gonna say, behold, the Prince of Peace. Is he going to say, behold, the coming king of kings, behold, the son of David, behold, the great shepherd? There are dozens of things he could have said, but what he said was, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that imagery of being a lamb taking away sin had a long history in Israel, If you had lived in that time and were familiar with the discourse of the Old Testament and you lived in those moments and somebody pointed in your general direction and called you a lamb to take away sins, that would not be a prophetic word you would want over your life during a ministry time, all right? I don't receive that, I think, is the functional phrase that we so often use in situations like those. You know why? Understatement of the morning, bad things happen to sacrificial lambs. They didn't live long and fulfilling lives. They suffered torturous deaths. All right, so this was not something you wanted spoken over your life, and yet there the finger pointed at this man who came to the River Jordan. He was going to be, first and foremost, a lamb who would, in some sense, we're gonna explore what that means, take away sins. Long before Jesus, in the time of Moses, God had instituted the sacrificial system for Israel, and the intention of the sacrificial system was to teach God's people at least three fundamental truths. One, God is holy. God is not to be trifled with. He is holy, he is just. Two, we, on the other hand, in contrast, are sinful people and our sins separate us from this holy God such that we deserve wrath for our many sins. And thirdly, 
God devised a plan. This was spoken through these symbols of sacrificial offerings. God devised a plan by which sinful people could be reconciled to him. And that plan involved blood, death, a high priest, and an atoning lamb. Because Israel's life was marked by repeated sinfulness, and these sacrifices were given to remind them of the nature and character of God and their own nature and their need for redemption. Because that's true, blood was, by the nature of the fact, always flowing in Israel. <clears throat> Constantly flowing. One lamb after another. One goat after another was disappearing from the backyard, right? As sacrifices were going on year after year, day after day, the people were coming in touch with the idea that God is holy and they were sinful. And there were many kinds of sacrifices. And if you couldn't afford a lamb, grab a pigeon. Because sacrifices had to be offered. Blood had to be spilt God was teaching his people something. And then there was this big day that happened every year in Israel. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats and he would slay one of them. He would kill it and blood would be spilled. And then he would take the other goat and he would put his hand on the head of that goat and he would speak over that goat, the sins of himself and the people of Israel, symbolically transferring the people's iniquity to that goat, and then he would drive it off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And all here, there were symbols, and what this meant, these two goats put together, meant that for the people to be forgiven, blood has to be shed, a lamb has to die so that the sins of the people can be taken off and forgotten about in the wilderness. That has to happen. And so God taught his people in sacrifice after sacrifice. The question, the burning question of the New Testament is, at least one of them, what were those sacrifices accomplishing? What was really happening? Obviously, it wasn't changing the people's hearts because the sacrifices continued to need to be offered. Lambs were still dying in Israel. So it's not fundamentally changing the people. It's not making them holy. They kept sinning. Sin removal continued to be thriving business in Israel. The most productive business in Israel. That's why the tabernacle and the temple was an perennially bloody, busy place. Was it really ridding them of guilt? Was it really atoning for their sins or achieving forgiveness? Or was the balance of Israel's debt to God for their sins simply being transferred? Payments deferred one month after another and this lump accruing sum, this debt incurred by infractions against the greatness of God, insults to the honor of God in Israel, and this debt was accruing and getting bigger and bigger, and it wasn't being put away by lambs and goats, right? That goat's life, granted it was the best goat they could find, but that goat's life was not enough to cover the insults to the honor of God in Israel. Enter the New Testament book of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. 
A little context on Hebrews 10. The book of Hebrews is largely written to an audience that seems to be Jewish Christians. Jews who were converted to Christianity. And at several points throughout the book, it appears that many of those Jewish Christians were looking back over their shoulder fondly, thinking about going back to Judaism. Because Christianity had, was a kind of ragtag group of people. It was called a sect Right? It didn't have much currency with the people. I mean, the guys at Mars Hill called Paul a babbler. The Jews thought their message was a stumbling block. The Greeks thought it was foolishness. So pretty much nobody gave a whole lot of credibility to this Christian faith. And it seems like it's the new kid on the block, spiritually speaking. And it doesn't have a whole lot of organization to it and structure to it and symbolism to it. And they're looking back over their shoulder and saying, man... I remember the experiences I had and the feelings I had when I offered sacrifice. It just seemed so rich that the symbolism in those traditions and I remember seeing the beautiful flowing garments of those who led us in worship and it was starting to become increasingly attractive and I remember the temple and meeting there. Granted, it wasn't Solomon's original temple, but it was still nice. It was better than the kind of mall strip meetings that we've been having here in Christian, in in the Christian foothills of experience. And so they're looking back fondly about those experiences. And the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews continually says, yes, yes, they were beautiful, weren't they? The, The symbols were rich, but what were they doing? Remember, they weren't cleansing you from sin because lambs continue to die. You had to go back again and again and again. It wasn't absolving you from the guilt that was on your back. It couldn't have dealt with that. What was the purpose? Was it really accomplishing that? The answer to which lingers through the book of Hebrews, the answer is no, It kept you ceremonially clean. It kept you kosher. And in addition, critically, it taught you very important things about God and the nature of salvation. Look at Hebrews 10. We'll read verse one through seven. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, here's the teaching, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, the one John the Baptist pointed to and said the Lamb of God, when he came, he said, sacrifices and offerings You have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, this is Jesus, I have come to do your will. I have come to get done what the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't get done. And he says, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Skip down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away 
sins. Those lambs, in other words, weren't valuable enough to take away the sins of God's people. The sacrificial system was a teaching tool, not a conscience cleanser, not a life transformation project. It taught the people something. God did not delight in the blood of bulls and goats. This isn't just Jesus talking here. This is a quote from David in the Old Testament. David said that. David said in Psalm 51 when he's repenting before God, he said, you've not desired the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God wants humility, not dead goats. God wants people who come before him needy, desperate for mercy. That's what the people needed the most. Those sacrifices, properly speaking, weren't even aimed at God. Because God wasn't sated by goat blood. They were aimed at the people. They were teaching tools. No, as an Old Testament believer, those sacrifices served to tell you, you need your sins to be taken away. And one day, a Messiah, a perfect lamb, to which all these symbols are pointing. A perfect lamb will come and he will bear away your sins forever, once and for all, one sacrifice, he will accomplish that. Now this is intimately connected to the character of God. There's no way to make sense of these sacrifices without talking about the holiness of God. God is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy of worship and esteem and reverence and obedience that's who God is and he has blessed us in his sovereignty and his providence over the world he's blessed us in countless ways whether you're a Christian or not a Christian God's blessing comes all over this world he pours out blessings he gives children he gives marriage he gives crops and fields and jobs and money and all kinds of medical care God God pours blessings all over the globe, especially to his covenant people where covenant graces and special graces flow. But there are blessings abounding all over the world. And this God who gives bounteously out of his grace, and yet there are in creation and in fallen humanity, we erect monuments of ingratitude before this God who provides us with every breath that we breathe every good thing that we enjoy. And these monuments of ingratitude before him are displeasing to God and God is holy in all of his ways and he's righteous and sin insults the majesty of God. Sin seeks to tarnish and take something away from the glory of God and if we know anything from the prophetic writings, God will not tolerate the robbery of his glory. He cannot tolerate his glory being tarnished. And the reason God contends more for his glory than anything else, the reason that God is contending for his centrality and preeminence in the universe is because he is central in the universe. He is preeminent in the universe. And therefore he can't look on disinterestedly when his name is flouted and his law is belittled and ignored and neglected by the people that he's granting breath and life to moment by moment in his world. And God's judgment rests on us for soiling his glory. All sin must be judged because God's nature is holy and just. And, and we learn in the New Testament, God cannot deny himself. It's a part of his nature. 
Habakkuk 1.13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Now, holiness is not the full picture of who God is in scripture. Exodus 34, which is in your outline, is probably one of the grandest theological statements in the Old Testament. It was a part of their, of their creed to say this about God. It was a self-revelation moment of God. Mark Dever, Pastor Mark Dever, calls Exodus 34 the great riddle of the Old Testament. Moses wants to see God's glory when we come to Exodus 34. He says, God, show me your glory. And this is what God does. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we all say, hallelujah, praise God, he's merciful and he's a God who forgives. But that's not where the passage ends. God keeps on speaking and he uses this word, but. Wait, what? But, yeah, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Friends, that is not good news for us. It goes on to say, will not by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So part of the glory of God here is that God forgives sinners. But the very next phrase is, who will by no means Clear the guilty. The question is, how can God do both of those at the same time and still be God without denying aspects of his nature? How can he forgive sinners who are guilty, right? How can he forgive sinners and by no means clear the guilty? That's the riddle. How's God gonna do that without dishonoring his name? You wanna hear another baffling verse? Look at this one, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, justifies the wicked may sound familiar if you read the New Testament because Paul uses that phrase in Romans chapter four. And he says this, and to the one who does not work, in other words, to the one who's not trying to earn acceptance with God by performing well, to the one who does not work but instead trusts him who justifies the ungodly. It's also translated wicked in some of your Bibles. Who, tr who trusts him who justifies the wicked, his faith, his trust in this justifier of wicked people is counted as righteousness. Now, the, the him in this verse seems to be doing what God abominates. Trouble is, the him is God. God is the one, God is the him who's justifying the wicked and the ungodly. So how does that happen? How does God take a sinful person like you and me who have earned wrath and justice before him for our not piddly peccadillo sins every now and then, hundreds, thousands of sins that we've committed, attacks on his honor. How are we gonna get off? How are we gonna be forgiven? You know, when it says in Exodus 34, he will by no means clear the guilty, that's not a bluff. That's not like the parent who keeps saying, I'm gonna discipline if you do that, and never does. Right? There is track record of God's wrath finding people in the Old Testament. You know that? God's not bluffing about this by no means clearing the guilty. You can follow it on back to the Old Testament, beginning with the fallen angels. Check them out right about now. Right? 
They, they are not having parties in hell, you know, shooting Bud Light commercials and stuff. They, <laughs> check out Noah in the flood, right? You'll think twice before you stitch that on the pillow of your two-year-old. That was an absolutely horrid sight. Corpses floating all over the globe. The wrath of God met the earth. It came down and touched down on planet earth. God is, is real in his holiness. God is a consuming fire. And what we learn as we read the New Testament is we haven't seen anything yet. There is a date that is scheduled in the future where the wrath of God will touch down on planet earth and God will judge those who have belittled and rejected his good gifts. And God is coming for fallen sinners here. You know, it's, it's wrong for us to be vengeful. Human vengeance is wrong because we're not ultimate in the universe. God is. We aren't the one who created everything and gives life and breath and sustenance to every living creature. God is. And so in Romans 13, when Paul's talking about vengeance, God's word to us isn't vengeance. Don't be vengeful because vengeance is wrong. No, it's don't be vengeful because Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a problem. That's a predicament for fallen human beings. And what's this have to do with Jesus dying on a cross? Everything. Everything to do with Jesus dying on the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 1, and we'll finish here. When Paul begins to unfold the glories of the gospel for believers in Rome, he actually begins by putting us all into the courtroom of God and finding us guilty before a holy God. It's, uh, if you haven't read it, it's an absolutely dismal account. One of the most dismal accounts probably in the entire Bible. I mean, in the space of about 26 verses that are spent defining and describing fallen human beings. There are over 65 references to the human condition and not one of them is flattering. They are all bad descriptions. And this whole discussion gets started by pointing to an attribute of God and it's not mercy. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so, if you follow on from there, the, the wrath of God hovers unsettlingly over this entire passage from 118 through 320. You're just, you're just marinating in these truths. And if you're reading it, self-conscious and self-aware of the many sins that you've committed against God, you will find yourself sinking lower and lower and lower in despair of any way out. This God is wrathful against sinful people. I am a sinful person, therefore he's coming for me. That's the sense that you get as you read this. But what Paul is doing is he's walking you to Cape Point. He's taking you to the edge where you're about to see something absolutely amazing about the character of God. You're going to see, when, by the time he's done here, the blazing center of the glory of God. You're gonna see 
oceans crashing into each other, oceans of the attributes of God on full display. The case of God versus fallen humanity has been prosecuted and the verdict comes. Look in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, if you start trying to obey the law now, it's too late. This road has been effectively shut down down there's no way to pleasing God by our own works by contriving things by turning over a new leaf by being a better person that's not gonna happen because the road of law says perfection is the way to get this done that's how law talks law doesn't talk mercy law talks justice and so Paul closes that road off before us and he puts the whole human race in the courtroom You and I are sitting in verse 20, trembling in the fear of God, waiting for the sentence to come about, waiting for the sword of God's wrath to run us through, waiting to hear the bullet fired. And inconceivably, the next word in Romans is the word but. And we hear a body fall and we check ourselves for holes because I shouldn't be alive. What happened? This happened, this this word, but this intrusion of some other substitute. Verse 21, "But, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Was there another way? Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, they they talked about, they gestured in the direction of this new way of acceptance with God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, if they will be justified, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, in his divine forbearance, he let them continue to transfer the payments. But the payments weren't being swept under the rug. They were being accrued before God and so he had to send forth his son to show his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Into this dismal passage comes a substitute. You know, and, and maybe then we start to remember the chronology. We start to remember Matthew chapter one. Angel comes to Joseph. Mary is with child. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. John chapter one. Behold, there he is. 
behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we go back to the Old Testament and it starts running through, wait, wait, lambs died. Lambs died with transferred guilt from people imputed to them and they were sent off into the wilderness where nothing lives. That's what happened and then suddenly we realize lamb sacrifices, atonement, forgiveness, Christ, Christ. He's the one who saved me from the wrath of God. The sword of the wrath of God which had been, as it were, pointed at your heart and my heart was, as one pastor said, sheathed into the heart of his own son. That's the gospel. Saved from wrath by Christ and we realize that in the darkness of John 19, another way was found. Another way to acceptance with God was found. Apart from the law, though the law and prophets spoke about this new way, it was apart from it. Righteousness that would be provided for us by Christ. The righteousness isn't even ours. It's his righteousness given to us on the basis of faith, credited to your account. It's his righteousness, and now it's yours. How is this possible? God will by no means clear the guilty. It's an abomination to God to justify the wicked. How did this happen? How did the riddle get solved? How did God justify the wicked without becoming an abomination to himself? We had sinned grievously. We were toast. We were destined for wrath and separation from God for all eternity. How are we still breathing? Much less accepted by God in his presence, praying to him, worshiping him. How is that possible? In the wisdom of God, he found a way for his just wrath not to be swept under the rug, but to be satisfied, for his justice to be assuaged, dealt with, answered, replied to, absorbed. In love, God would send his son to be our substitute. This was the covenant of redemption, an eternal pact that was made between the father and the son. The father said, I'll send you And the son said, I'll go. Why? The son said, I'll go. Let's not mix up the order. I'll go because I want the world to see that you are just and you are merciful. I want the world to see the glory of God. You know, sometimes we can get notions that are really perverse biblical ideas that somehow Jesus loves us more than the Father because Jesus is the one who was hanging on the cross. Oh, if you were a father, which one would you rather? Your one and only son? Putting your hand on his head in the darkness and transferring the guilt of sinners to him and driving him out of your presence? Robert Raymond said, when we look at Calvary and behold the Savior dying for us, we should see in his death not first our salvation, but our damnation being born and carried away by him. And so Paul in Romans 3 brings us to a vantage point where we can see the unrelenting force of the justice of God and the breathtaking power of God's mercy in the same 
moment. John Stott said, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. If we could ask the biblical writers for divine perspective on John 19 and we could interview them and we could say, Isaiah, what was happening in the darkness of John 19? Isaiah would say something like this. In the darkness, he was being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In the darkness outside Jerusalem, the Lord was laying on him the iniquities of us all. John, what was taking place as Jesus Christ hung on the cross? You wanna know what was taking place? The Lamb of God was taking away the sins of the world. Mark, he was the son of man. He was giving his life as a ransom for many. Peter, he was himself bearing our sins in his body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Paul would say through tears of joy, he was himself bearing our sins. God was making him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. No wonder he trembled in the garden. It wasn't nails and thorns that was making him tremble like that. No, but the thought of fulfilling Psalm 22, of saying in his own experience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was unthinkable. And bear in mind, Jesus was God. As God, Jesus alone knew how mighty, almighty wrath really was. In divine wisdom, this was the only way. This would at once exalt the justice of God, the mercy of God, and redeem sinners. God had solved the riddle of Exodus 34. God could at last uphold his glory and redeem sinners like you and me. He could be both just and justifier. You know where Paul takes us after this? After this grand sighting of the blazing center of the glory of God, he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, where's boasting? And what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. For that matter, what becomes of self-righteousness when we see the cross this way? What becomes of pride and competition amongst ourselves? What becomes of selfish ambition? It is excluded. You know, here again we see that the motivation for living the Christian life doesn't come from our own resolve. Paul, when he leaves this passage and he goes forward after unfolding the glories of the gospel and he comes to Romans chapter 12 and he wants to tell you how to live. He wants to tell you what the Christian life looks like in the church and in your own personal life. You know where he's gonna motivate you? Where is he gonna go? He's gonna take you to Cape Point and he's gonna say, in view of that, of course, your reasonable response is to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
to not be conformed to this world in view of mercy, in view of what you've seen of the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. This is amazing news. This news transforms our lives. This is the heart of our faith. We've got to look here. We've got to, as Charles Spurgeon said, Christian, abide hard by the cross. Search the mystery of his wounds. It seems like a theological abstraction. Nothing could be more relevant for our lives than to see this and to be captured by this. And you know what happens? All kinds of things start transpiring in our lives. We start being changed. We start looking for rocks to scratch names on because other people have got to hear this. They've got to be in on what I've seen here. Indescribable mercy. Well, this morning, we don't have rocks for all of you to scratch anything on, but we do have a more meaningful, biblical way to respond to what we've seen, and that's the Lord's Supper. So if you would all stand. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance to be participated in by those who have turned from sin and put their trust in this Jesus. If you haven't done that, if you're not a Christian, God's word calls out to you and says, come to me, turn to me, turn from sin, put your faith and your trust in me. You can do that right now where you're, where you're standing. You can respond to the grace of God that you've seen. You don't have to utter some long, drawn out, profoundly theological prayer. You know, Jesus loved a prayer in the New Testament. Guess what it was? Have mercy on me, a poor sinner. In your heart, you can say to God, oh God, have mercy on me and save me and be my Lord. And he will be your Lord. And by all means, participate with us in the celebration of what he's done on the cross. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna contemplate the riches of the grace of God together. We're gonna do it through this, this symbol, this ceremony together. So here's how we do it if, if the ushers can come forward and help us. They're gonna release you aisle by aisle. If you can turn to your right, everybody go out to your right and come down and receive the elements and then you'll turn back around, go down your aisle again and wait there and we'll all partake together and Pastor Peter will lead us in receiving that. So, let's begin. Mm-hmm.